0: Chapter Eleven of Jock of the Bushveld. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Susie S. A. in Hermanus, South Africa, January 2010. Jock of the Bushveld by Sir Percy Fitzpatrick. Chapter Eleven: The bull Jock had learned one very clever trick in pulling down wounded animals. It often happens when you come unexpectedly upon game that they are off before you see them, and the only chance you have of getting anything is with a running shot. If they go straight from you, the shot is not a very difficult one, although you see nothing but the lifting and falling hind quarters as they canter away, and a common result of such a shot is the breaking of one of the hind legs between the hip and the hock jock made his discovery while following a reef buck which i had wounded in this way he had made several tries at its nose and throat but the buck was going too strongly and was out of reach moreover it would not stop or turn when he headed it but charged straight on bounding over him in trying once more for the throat he cannoned against the buck's shoulder and was sent rolling yards away this seemed to madden him racing up behind he flew at the dangling leg caught it at the shin and, thrusting his feet well out, simply dragged until the buck slowed down, and then began furiously tugging sideways. The crossing of the legs brought the wounded animal down immediately, and Jock had it by the throat before it could rise again. Everyone who is good at anything has some favourite method or device of his own. That was Jock's. It may have come to him, as it comes to many, by accident, but having once got it, he perfected it and used it whenever it was possible. Only once he made a mistake, and he paid for it, very nearly with his life. He had already used this device successfully several times, but so far only with the smaller buck. This day he did what I should have thought to be impossible for a dog three or four times his size. I left the scene of torn carcass and crunched bones, consumed by regret and disappointment. Each fresh detail only added to my feeling of disgust, but Jock did not seem to mind, he jumped up briskly as soon as I started walking in earnest, as though he recognised that we were making a fresh start, and he began to look forward immediately. The little bare flat where the kudu had fallen for the last time was at the head of one of those depressions which collected water of the summer floods, and changing gradually into shallow valleys, are eventually scoured out and become dongas, dry in winter but full charged with muddy flood in summer, which drain the bushveld to its rivers. Here and there, where an impermeable rock formation crosses these channels, there are deep pools which, except in years of drought, last all through the winter, and these are the drinking-places of the game. I followed this one down a couple of miles without any definite purpose, until the sign of some greener and denser wild figs suggested that there may be water, and perhaps a reedbuck or a dacre nearby. As we reached the trees, Jock showed unmistakable signs of interest in something, and, with the utmost caution, I moved from tree to tree in the shady grove towards where it seemed the water hole might be. There were bushy wild plums flanking the grove, and beyond them the ordinary scattered thorns. As I reached this point and stopped to look out between the bushes onto the more open ground, a kudu cow walked quietly up the slope from the water, but before there was time to raise the rifle, her easy stride had carried her beyond the small mimosa tree, I took one quick step out to follow her up, and found myself face to face at less than a dozen yards with a grand kudu bull. It is impossible to convey in words any real idea of the scene and how things happened. Of course, it was only for a fraction of a second that we looked straight into each other's eyes. Then, as if by magic, he was round and going from me with an overwhelming rush of speed and strength and weight combined. Yet it is the first sight that remains with me the proud head the huge spiral horns and the wide soft staring eyes before the wildness of panic had stricken them the picture seems photographed on eye and brain never to be forgotten a whirlwind of dust and leaves marked his course and through it i fired unsteadied by excitement and hardly able to see then the right hind leg swung out and the great creature sank for a moment almost to the ground and the sense of triumph the longed for and unexpected success went to my head like a rush of blood there had been no time to aim and the shot a real snap-shot was not at all a bad one it was after that that the natural effect of such a meeting and such a chance began to tell thinking it all out beforehand does not help much for things never happen as they are expected to and even months of practice amongst the smaller kinds will not ensure a steady nerve when you just come face to face with big game. There seems to be too much at stake. I fired again as the kudu recovered himself, but he was then seventy or eighty yards away, and partly hidden at times by trees and scrub. He struck up the slope, following the line of the troop through the scattered thorns, and there, running hard and dropping quickly to my knees for steadier aim, I fired again and again, but each time a longer shot and more obscured by the intervening bush, and no tell-tale thud came back to cheer me on. Forgetting the last night's experience, forgetting everything except how we had twice chased and twice lost them, seeing only another and the grandest prize slipping away, I sent Jock on and followed as fast as I could. Once more the Kudu came in sight, just a chance at four hundred yards as he reached an open space on rising ground. Jock was already closing up, but still unseen, and the old, noble fellow turned full broadside to me as he stopped to look back. Once more I knelt, gripping hard and holding my breath to snatch a moment's steadiness, and fired, but I missed again, and as the bullet struck under him he plunged forwards and disappeared over a rise at the moment that Jock, dashing out from the scrub, reached his heels. The old martini carbine had one bad fault, even I could not deny that years of rough and careless treatment in all sorts of weather, for it was only a discarded old mountain police weapon, had told on it, and both in barrel and breech it was well pitted with rust scars. One result of this was that it was always jamming, and unless the cartridges were kept well greased, the empty shells would stick and the ejector fail to work, and this was almost sure to happen when the carbine became hot from quick-firing. It jammed now, And fearing to lose sight of the chase, I dared not stop a second, but ran on, struggling from time to time to wrench the breach open. Reaching the place where they had disappeared, I saw with intense relief and excitement Jock and the koodoo having it out less than a hundred yards away. The koodoo's leg was broken right up in the ham, and it was a terrible handicap for an animal so big and heavy, but his nimbleness and quickness were astonishing. Using the sound hind leg as a pivot, he swung round, always facing his enemy. "'Jock was in and out, here, there, and everywhere, "'as a buzzing fly torments one on a hot day. "'And indeed, to the koodoo, just then he was the fly and nothing more. "'He could only annoy his big enemy, and was playing with his life to do it. "'Sometimes he tried to get round, sometimes pretended to charge straight in, "'stopping himself with all four feet spread, just out of reach. "'Then, like a red streak, he would fly through the air with a snap for the koodoo's nose. "'It was a fight for life and a grand sight.' for the kudu, in spite of his wound, easily held his own. No doubt he had fought out many a life-and-death struggle to win and hold his place as lord of the herd, and knew every trick of attack and defence. Maybe, too, he was blazing with anger and contempt for this persistent little gadfly that worried him so and kept out of reach. Sometimes he snorted and fainted to charge, other times backed slowly, giving way to draw the enemy on, then, with a sudden lunge, the great horn switched like the skies with a tremendous reach-out, easily covering the spot where Jock had been a fraction of a second before. There were pauses, too, in which he watched his tormentor steadily, with occasional impatient shakes of the head, or, raising to its full height, towered up a monument of splendid and contemptuous indifference, looking about with big, angry but unfrightened eyes for the herd, his herd, that had deserted him— or with a slight toss of his head he would walk limpingly forward, forcing the ignored Jock before him, then, interrupted in a noise by a flying snap at his nose, he would spring forward and strike with the sharp clubbed forefoot, zip, 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 at Jock as he landed. Any one of the vicious flashing stabs would have pinned him to the earth and finished him, but Jock was never there. Keeping what cover there was, I came up slowly behind them struggling and using all the force i dared short of smashing the lever to get the empty cartridge out. At last one of the turns of the fight brought me in view, and the kudu dashed off again. For a little way the pace seemed as great as ever, but it soon died away, the driving power was gone, the strain and weight on the one sound leg and the tripping of the broken one were telling, and from that on I was close enough to see it all. In the first rush the koodoo seemed to dash right over Jock, the swirl of dust and leaves and the bulk of the kudu hiding him then i saw him close abreast looking up at it and making furious jumps for its nose alternately from one side and the other as they raced along together the kudu holding its nose high and well forward as they do when on the move with the horns thrown back almost horizontally was out of his reach and galloped heavily on completely ignoring his attacks there is a suggestion of grace and poise in the movement of the bull's head as he gallops through the bush, which is one of his distinctions above the other antelopes. The same supple balancing movement that one notes in the native girls bearing their calabashes of water upon their heads is seen in the neck of the kudu, and for the same reason the movements of the body are softened into mere undulations, and the head with its immense spiral horns seem to sail along in voluntary company indeed almost as though it were bearing the body below. At the fourth or fifth attempt by Jock, a spurt from the kudu brought him cannoning against its shoulder, and he was sent rolling unnoticed yards away. He scrambled instantly to his feet, but found himself again behind. It may have been this fact that inspired the next attempt, or perhaps he realized that attack in front was useless, for this time he went determinedly for the broken leg. It swung about in wild eccentric curves, but at the third or fourth attempt he got it and hung on, and with all fours spread he dragged along the ground. The first startled spring of the kudu jerked him into the air, but there was no let-go now, and although dragged along the rough ground and dashed among the scrub, sometimes swinging in the air and sometimes sliding on his back, he pulled from side to side in futile attempts to throw the big animal. Ineffectual and even hopeless as it looked at first, Jock's attack soon began to tell. The kudu made wild efforts to get at him, but with every turn he turned too, and did it so vigorously that the staggering animal swayed over and had to plunge violently to recover its balance. So they turned this way and that, until a wilder plunge swung Jock off his feet, throwing the broken leg across the other one. Then, with feet firmly planted, Jock tugged again and the koodoo, trying to regain its footing, was tripped by the crossed leg and came down with a crash. As it fell, Jock was round and fastened on the nose, but it was no dacre, impala or reet buck that he had to deal with this time. The koodoo gave a snort of indignation and shook its head as a terrier shakes a rat, so it shook Jock, whipping the ground with his swinging body, and with another indignant snort and toss of the head flung him off, sending him skidding along the ground on his back. The koodoo had fallen on the wounded leg, and failed to rise with the first effort. Jock was still slithering along the ground on his back, was tearing at the air with his feet in his mad haste to get back to the attack, and as he scrambled up, he raced in again with head down and little eyes black with fury. He was too mad to be wary, and my heart stood still as long as the horns went round with a swish. One black point seemed to pierce him through and through, showing a foot out the other side and a jerky twist of the great head sent him twirling like a tip-cat eight or ten feet up in the air. It had just missed him, passed under his stomach next to his hind leg, but until he dropped with a thud, and tearing and scrambling to his feet he raced in again, I felt certain he had been gored through. The kudu was up again then. I had rushed in with rifle club with the wild idea of stunning it before it could rise, but was met with the lowered horns and unmistakable signs of charging, "'and beat a retreat quite as speedy as my charge. "'It was a running fight from that on. "'The instant the kudu turned to go, "'Jock was on to the leg again, "'and nothing could shake his hold. "'I had to keep at a respectful distance, "'for the bull was still good for a furious charge, "'even with Jock hanging on, "'and eyed me in the most unpromising fashion "'whenever I attempted to head it off "'or even to come close up. "'The big eyes were bloodshot then, "'but there was no look of fear in them. "'They blazed with baffled rage.' impossible as it seemed to shake jock off or to get away from us and in spite of the broken leg and loss of blood the furious attempts to beat us off did not slacken it was a desperate running fight and right bravely he fought it to the end partly barring the way in front were the whitened trunks and branches of several trees struck down by some storm of the year before and running ahead of the kudu i made for these hoping to find a stick straight enough for a ramrod to force the empty cartridge out as I reached them, the koodoo made for me with a half-dozen plunges that sent me flying off for other cover, but the broken leg swayed over one of the branches, and Jock, with feet planted against the tree, hung on, and the koodoo, turning furiously on him, stumbled, floundered, tripped, and came down with a crash amongst the crackling wood. Once more, like a flash, Jock was over the fallen body and had fastened on the nose, but only to be shaken worse than before. The koodoo literally flogged the ground with him, and for an instant I shut my eyes. It seemed as if the plucky dog would be beaten into pulp. The bull tried to chop him with his forefeet, but it could not raise itself enough, and at each pause Jock, with his watchful little eye ever on the alert, dodged his body round to avoid the chopping feet without letting go his hold. Then with a snort of fury the koodoo, half-rising, gave its head a wide upward sweep and shook, as a springing rod flings a fish, the kudu flung jock over its head and on to the low, flat-top thorn-tree behind. The dog, somersaulted slowly as he circled in the air, dropped on his back in the thorns, some twelve feet from the ground, and came tumbling down through the branches. Surely the tree saved him, for it seemed as if such a throw must break his back. As it was, he dropped with a sickening thump, yet even as he fell I saw again the scrambling, tearing movement— as if he was trying to race back to the fight even before he reached the ground. Without a pause to breathe or even look, he was in again, and trying once more for the nose. The kudu, lying partly on its side, with both hind legs hampered by the mass of dead wood, could not rise, but it swept the clear space in front with the terrible horns, and for some time kept Jock at bay. I tried stick after stick for a ramrod, but without success— at last, in desperation at seeing Jock once more hanging to the koodoo's nose, I hooked the lever onto a branch, and, setting my foot against the tree, wrenched until the empty cartridge flew out, and I went staggering backwards. In the last struggle, while I was busy with the rifle, the koodoo had moved, and it was then lying against one of the fallen trunks. The first swing to get rid of Jock had literally slogged him against the tree. The second swing swept him under it, where a bend in the trunk raised it about a foot from the ground and gaining his foothold there, Jock stood fast. There, there, with his feet planted firmly and his shoulder humped against the dead tree, he stood this tug-of-war. The koodoo, with its head twisted back, as caught at the end of a swing, could put no weight to the pull. Yet the wrenches it gave to free itself drew the nose and upper lip out like tough rubber, and seemed to stretch Jock's neck visibly. I had to come round within a few feet of them to avoid risk of hitting Jock, and it seemed impossible for bone and muscle to stand the two or three terrible wrenches that I saw. The shot was the end, and as the splendid head dropped slowly over, Jock let go his hold. He had not uttered a sound except the grunts that were knocked out of him. End of chapter 11